I'm Jack Ruston. Welcome to the Ruston's Boneyard podcast. We're talking about real food, traditional cooking, nutrition, health and exercise. We're asking whether a more primal approach to life brings us further in line with the biology evolution has given us. We'll be exploring some of these topics with expert guests from the worlds of clinical practice and research. I'm not qualified to give any sort of medical or dietary advice, and nothing in this material should be considered as such. The opinions expressed here are for the purposes of discussion only. Please consult a qualified medical professional before undertaking changes to your diet. And now, on with the show. Hey you guys, I'm Jack Ruston. Welcome to Ruston's Boneyard. Now, over the past few weeks, I have been sharing my How Do We Lose Fat series. And in episode three, we talked about hormones. Now, my material was a broad overview, focusing mainly on metabolic hormones. And my intention was to persuade someone on the clinical side to come and talk to me to flesh out some of the finer nuance in what is an extremely complex topic. And in doing so, I wanted to find a guest who could shed some light on an area that I steered clear of, that being female hormones. And I have the perfect person, or should I say people, to help us all understand a bit more about this sometimes rather opaque subject. Without any further nonsense, I am thrilled and extremely grateful to be able to welcome Christian Johnson and Maria Claps of Wise and Well. Hey, you guys. Uh, Kristen is a functional nutritionist with advanced training in holistic nutrition, as well as a specialty in perimenopause and menopause health. She is board certified in holistic nutrition through the National Association of Nutrition Professionals, a certified Dutch hormone test practitioner, and a graduate of the NTA's Functional Nutritional Therapy Practitioner Program. Maria is a functional health coach, also with a specialty in perimenopause and menopause. She graduated from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition and went on to study in a hormone program for practitioners with Dr. Sarah Gottfried. She completed the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Certification Program and the Menopause Method Program for Physicians with Dr. David Rosensweet. She's been mentored by hormone scholar Dr. Lindsay Berkson and naturopathic endocrinologist Dr. Rebecca Provorce. Did mm-hmm. I get that right? You got it right. <laughs> Kristen, Maria, thank you so much for being here. Um, to give us some context, what are your personal stories? How did you both wind up working in this quite specific area of practice? I was about 43 and menopausal and I wasn't feeling like happy and healthy and like things were going well. So I sought out um, a doctor in New York City who was, you know, well published, many books, YouTube channel, uh, thought I did my research. Um, You know, I had always been sort of holistically minded and knew that I wanted more than just kind of like what was offered right here, the local GP. Um, And so I trekked into New York City and I got piled on as seems to be the thing with these functional medicine centers, Kristen, right? (laughs) We had an interesting Um, experience on that. (laughs) They run an inordinate amount of tests um, and they give you an inordinate amount of supplements and they give you the exact opposite when it comes to education and support and coaching and explanation. Um, Not that I needed handholding, but I needed more than just, you know, test, supplement, drugs. So it was at that point that I decided to, I was like, there has to be something more. It's just, it's got to be better than this. And that was when I began my educational journey. 
Yeah. Mine was, um, you know, ended up in the same spot as Maria, but came at it a little different from that. Um, I was in Boston. Um, it's a very conventional minded Mecca. Um, big pharma prevails. And um, I went to my doctor and had another very similar experience women have, which is she told me, there's nothing wrong with you. You do not need any tests and actually refuse to do tests. Um you know, I think women are smart, even though we tend to normalize a lot of things because we're typically the caregiver for everybody else in our world. And so we, we have a difficult time sometimes turning that caregiving onto ourselves. Um, I was adamant there was something off with me. And my, I'll be perfectly frank, my marriage was suffering for it. You know, I was just kind of turning into a miserable person and I couldn't understand what was going on. So um, I ended up at the doctor multiple times over a course of months. I think I got tested for everything I could I could imagine to ask for Lyme's disease, autoimmune, you name it. Um, and through it all, she refused to ever test my sex hormones till I was too young. And um, that's where I just finally, the rubber hit the road. I knew something was off. And I think women have a phenomenal instinct about their body and their health. And then I just did the same thing with Maria. I said, there's gotta be something better than this. I'm not willing to kind of become a statistic. So I dug in and started my education journey and, you know, ended up finding Maria along the way. I mean, there must be a there must be a real palpable sense of of that tick. I mean, I know it's a cliche, the kind of clock ticking, but you know that something's wrong and that things are changing, and that, that maybe if there's something to be done about this, it must be very kind of almost frightening to feel that it's not being done, that there's nobody helping you, to nobody giving you those answers, and 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 things are only continuing to evolve. Yeah. I mean, you wonder if the clock is ticking towards something you're not going to be able to reverse. You know, yes. we've all watched our mothers age poorly. Right. And I think that's mm -hmm. the biggest concern is, you know, whether it's physical, emotional, social, whatever, um, their generation was not served by the medical establishment when it comes to midlife and menopause. And that was a horrifying possibility. You know, I didn't want to end up with a lot of the things that she lived with that were not a good end of her second half of life and you know i think we deserve better so um yeah there was definitely kind of this clock ticking imperative going on mm. so what what are those common early signs for women let's say you know you're in your late 30s or your 40s what what are what are the signs that people need to look out for that that, that indicate that they might be struggling and might might need some support I'll start out with anything that feels really palpably different. Like, you know, if you are, say, a mildly anxious type and then your anxiety goes through the roof, there's a massively common sign of perimenopause. If you are not an anxious type and all of a sudden at, say, 43, you have this anxiety that seemingly came out of nowhere, big sign of perimenopause, by the way, related to dropping progesterone. So um, that's a big one. So anything that feels really often different to you. So it could be weight gain. Uh, absolutely. Just weight gain again. That seems to come out of nowhere. But again, your hormones are shifting. Um, your metabolism is shifting a little. And you probably haven't realized it. And you haven't shifted uh, how you eat and how you move. Um, primarily how you eat. So weight, um, mood issues. Okay. So some like besides anxiety, then just kind of like feeling low and flat. And that is, uh, you know, 
it can have several causes, but that is likely related to just a drop in estrogen because estrogen really kind of interfaces with serotonin and serotonin is our happy neurotransmitter. Um, achy bones. I had horrific um, frozen shoulder, early 40s. I guess my, I mean, I, now that I look back, I, it was, I was in serious estrogen decline, you know, and now early 50s, I never thought I would ever be able to do uh, a full plank push-up again. Like serious shoulder issues. Now I can. So, um, so yeah, there are some things that you know, Kristen. What else would you say? I, I put it in disrupted before. sleep is a huge thing. Yeah. You know, women suddenly become bad sleepers in their early forties and mid forties, and that has a whole cascade of health impacts, as we all know, is when sleep is elusive. Um, cognition, I just could not function some days. And it wasn't for me in the beginning, it wasn't a mood based issue. It was truly just brain function was just off. Um, and you know, you joke about it, we kind of get um, self deprecating with this, like, Oh, I can't live without lists every day, I need lists to tell me about my list, you know, etc. But you know, as much as we want to attribute that to sort of that frenetic period of life with kids and everything, uh, it, it's, we should be able to function better than this. You know, we have high functioning mm -hmm. skills. Um, so that was an issue for me. And like Maria, the joint, I didn't have the joints. I had a lot of, uh, ligament and tendon changes. And, um, as you know, Jack, I've had a, a boatload of surgeries and a lot of them have, you know, joint replacements and different things that we're not age appropriate. If I look back and I'm totally honest with myself, knowing now that the hormonal decline was impacting the strength, the fluidity, the flexibility, and all those things of those ligaments, it does always leave this nagging question in the back of my head of, you know, would I have ended up with those injuries, but for a hormonal deficiency? Um, so, you know, there's things like that. And I think the shifting weight, sometimes it's not that you add weight, all of a sudden it just sort of changes its location on your body that can be a sudden like what happened i was used to my thunder thighs and now i have a belly you know uh, <laughs> okay thing. yeah so, because that's a that's an estrogen thing isn't it where the where estrogen allows women to hold their weight on their hips and thighs and then if that dies down then it moves yeah. to your belly is that correct yeah and yeah. to the series that you did you know it, people will blame estrogen in midlife but as marie and i have talked about in another space insulin is going to tell your body to add the fat, right? Estrogen is just telling your body where to put it. Um, and that shift, you know, sometimes, uh, and this gets into something Marie and I will be happy to talk about is that shift of insulin suddenly having a very loud signal in your body is also related to hormonal decline. You know, women don't realize that maybe they were able to eat a load of carbs in their 20s and 30s. As estrogen declines, your ability to process and handle carbs becomes impaired. And so that same carb load, and this is where we hear women say, like, they're moving the goalposts on me. I haven't changed my eating. And then all of a sudden, you know, my body composition changes. That's hormonal decline. It's not always you know the um that you really made a big mistake in your choice it's just those choices don't work for this stage of life anymore so okay so 
let's say somebody comes to you and they've got these kinds of problems and and, and this is obviously quite a difficult thing because it, because a lot of the things that you're talking about are, are things that could be multifactorial they could have a number of causes and 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 so so what do, what do you guys then do how do you tease out what's going on with somebody you know because in the uk if you go to your gp then they just kind of do a blood test and then they you know either it's sort of h or hrt or goodbye or whatever but how how can you you know I'm, I'm assuming you know from your dutch testing qualification that this is something that you use and could you explain dutch testing to people how does it work and what what can you what can you learn from that as practitioners so yeah we do use the dutch test because it's going to give us um what not just your static levels of hormones but what those hormones how they're behaving in the body how they're the kind of clinical word is metabolizing how they're detoxing in the body so that gives us clues um there's many other clues on the test as well it's the best picture of adrenal health so we can certainly use saliva for looking at the cortisol up and down pattern throughout the day um but we don't see uh the we don't see um the total production and the amount of free. Um, we get to see if someone, you know, we have a woman who comes to us, she's got like, you know, chin hairs or, or acne. We get to see like what path, what metabolic path does her testosterone prefer? And, you know, they're really, the great thing about this, uh, Jack, is that this is not like we see these things and we're like, oh, or we'll watch that. It's like, there are very distinctive things that we can do, food, lifestyle, supplements that can help to change these markers and then change, you know, their, their problems or quality of life issues. Um, and then we also like, uh, you know, another thing we do is we work on gut health. So that's going to have a, you know, beneficial effect on everything. Um, and then lastly, again, to kind of suss out, like, because you said most of these things, many of these things are multifactorial. Um, we don't, do this with everyone, but if we feel a need, um, we will run a really comprehensive uh, blood panel that looks at liver enzymes and, you know, fractionated lipids and markers of inflammation. And boy, we've had a couple of clients um, in the past, uh, I would say, few weeks where it's a huge wake up call. Like it's a huge, I guess, blessing for them that they opted to do that test because. Uh, they're really making some lifestyle changes that are going to impact the rest of their life in a positive way. Yeah, I, I would say too the Dutch test, um, although it doesn't test it directly, it does give Maria and me a hint that there's any pattern related to thyroid dysfunction. And that's another yeah. piece of that midlife puzzle, right, mm -hmm. is that just as our ovaries are aging naturally, which is normal, um, the thyroid sort of has a bit of an aging process too. And you know, it because it is multifactorial, sometimes for a woman, it's maybe an autoimmune process within her thyroid. Um, others, it might just be a slowing thyroid. And when we start to identify estrogen and progesterone deficiencies, we often uncover thyroid dysfunction along with it. So the Dutch will kind of give us a hint like, mm, there's a signal here, maybe we should look into this further. And then we'll recommend either with their GP or us, you know, we can pull a blood lab to do a really comprehensive thyroid panel. I myself <clears throat> livid lately because I was during this phase of asking my doctor for questions. She was checking my thyroid. Well, she was testing just TSH, which is a trailing marker and doesn't show thyroid dysfunction really in its infancy. And when I look back at my labs, going back to like 2016, 2015, 2014, my TSH was way too high than what even today's standards of functional medicine would, would accept. 
And so I think, you know, I probably went 10 years with an under-functioning thyroid along with this declining hormone thing. So my brick wall was pretty hefty <laughs> once I hit it. Um, but so things like that, we look at those testing uh, tests uh, for the women and, you know, we don't do it in a vacuum though. And this is something that um, Marie and I get asked quite a bit, can you just do my tests or can you run my tests? And our answer is a flat out no. We used to do that to be honest, but um, we've learned over time women have a cognitive dissonance between how their own diet and lifestyle choices might be impacting this whole transition. Mm. And so we require an in-depth health history and intake. We require a three-day food and mood journal. And we don't want to just get, I ate salmon. You know, we're asking, how did you poop? How did you sleep? How was your mood? How, you know, were you functioning just energetically? Um, and we take that clinical piece that the tests give us and we overlay it with the diet and lifestyle choices that the intake information gives us because that really is the whole picture. You know, we aren't victim to whatever's happening in our body. We are influencing things to a certain degree. So that would be an important piece is that women step back and, you know, look at blood tests in the context of, you know, what they're doing as well. So this, this seems to be a kind of jigsaw of evidence where you're, <laughs> where you're filling in pieces. You're saying, okay, well, so there's this and there's this, and this person's living this way and this way and this way. And all of those things are coming together. It's not like, okay, you do the Dutch test and it gives you the truth and that's it. It's not quite as easy as that because also, I mean, but that whole thing, the thyroid is strange, isn't it? Because then you get people eating certain diets, which can change their requirement for certain thyroid levels. And I mean, when, when I was eating carnivore, I had no thyroid hormone at all. And, and yeah. I was told by the clinicians that were supervising me, oh, that's fine. It's completely normal. It's okay. It's like, well, why am I freezing cold and can't get up out of this chair, you know, and it's 35 degrees outside and everyone's in the sea and I'm just shivering here like a little wreck, you know. So it's, yeah, so like you say, it's a really important marriage of all of these pieces of evidence then. Yeah. And it's also really individual. You know, there might be someone, Jack, who lives next door to you who's thriving on carnivore and they don't see their thyroid throttle. Right. And so that's the other piece of it is we have this wonderful access to a lot of information via things like social media and different Internet um, options. And so women sometimes start kind of biohacking themselves. And it's like this game of whack-a-mole, like, oh, I'm going to do carnivore for three months. And now that didn't work. So now I'm just going to do keto for three months. And, and they come to us ultimately very frustrated because this process is happening in the background with those goalposts moving on their health factors. And then they're sort of, you know, hacking their way through trying to get answers. It's just not that simple. This is, you know, not a plug for us. You just need a practitioner and a clinician who's trained in these things to take that puzzle jigsaw look and put the pieces together. So. And you, yeah. and you need some time. Yeah. You need some time. Like these things don't turn around right away and you know and then that's just another reason why we refuse to like just sell tests and you know interpretations of tests it's yeah. women think you know that that's good but it's really a small it's a small piece of the whole process yeah, I think we see this a lot, don't we, where, you know, online where people are changing too many things too quickly and they're not giving anything time enough to develop. Mm -hmm. 
So you guys are saying, look, you know, let's give this 90 days. Let's make these changes that we're going to suggest to you. And then let's reevaluate and see what changes. And, and then we might need to escalate. So, so on that basis, tell me what, you know, you, t- you mentioned diet exercise and, you know, Maria, when you were, when you were talking earlier, you know, what, what should, how should people be eating? How should they be exercising? What kind of things are you suggesting to your clients? And then, and then moving up from there, how, how, how does that scale of intervention develop? Well, we're all, we live in a very uh, carbohydrate, easy access society, right? And so, and they can be a little bit addicting. And so, and, and when we eat that way, you know, in our 20s, 30s, maybe early 40s, we can get away with it because we have estrogen. Now, it's not necessarily the still healthy, but it doesn't have as much impact on the body. Okay, so now when we move into, say, starting in the early 40s, mid 40s, whatever, that is a little different for each woman, but she tends to know like things are changing. We have to up the protein and really dial back the carbs. And another thing I'm going to add to that is just this whole one of the things I took me years to come to realize is like alcohol is not my friend. So this kind of like mommy juice, you know, wine o'clock somewhere is so not helping you. So, yeah. yeah. And I would say Maria's being kind um, protein. It's gotta be animal protein. And that's a really, (laughs) really uncomfortable place for a lot of women because they're drilled with this sort of low fat calorie in calorie out mindset. Um, You know, protein, while calorie for calorie, the same or gram for gram, I should say the same as carbohydrates, it comes with a package of fat, right? And so women will focus on the plant based thing. We also have a fairly large global narrative regarding plants being better than animals right now. And so we see a lot of these women who are like, I do eat high protein and they're layering, you know, pumpkin seed protein powder with pea protein and soy in their salads and things like that. And we need to have a really honest chat with them about, um, you know, what are we trying to accomplish, right? For women, it's often the vanity point of our appearance. And how do we change our appearance? We shift our body composition. We want more muscle, less fat. Well, what do we need to build muscle? We need complete amino acids. And they're going to, you know, really be coming from plants. So I mean, from animals. Um, And so we do have to shift that whole spinach salad with a side of chicken mentality of eating and uh, put them on a higher animal protein template. But then the movement piece is key. You can't just eat protein and think the muscles are going to come, right? And that's another piece of women's kind of habits at this stage of life. It's cardio and it's, I'm going to exercise off what I just ate, or I'm going to earn my calories. Mm. And that needs to be completely shattered in women. And we are a bit noisy on that issue. We're like, look, drop the Orange Theory Fitness, quit the constant running, you know, ditch your treadmill, stop the Peloton. It needs to end. If you're serious about your health or your uh, appearance, either one, you need to start lifting weights and you need to start lifting heavy weights, not mm. 30 minute beach body, small dumbbells, 15 reps, you know, endurance type uh, weightlifting. We're talking real strength training. And 
that can be a big ass, Jack, is to say to women in their 40s and 50s, we need you to eat more animals and lift heavy things. It's like, whoa, you know, there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, but there's, you know, sound reasons why and they're metabolically driven, they're health driven. And if you're really interested in either appearance or your health span, you need to kind of jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, so so many women kind of come up with this thing about, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to get bulky, I don't want to put on muscle. God, if you knew how hard it was for men to put on muscle, I mean, <laughs> that's why when you go in the gym, all those massive guys are covered in acne and stuff. You know, it's because they're juicing. You know, what's going in their breakfast is a little different from the rest of us. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, it, I, Jack, I like to tell women that this I. I lift as heavy as I possibly can without hurting myself. Um, I, on most days, I'm getting the animal protein that I need, and I use testosterone cream. Yeah. <laughs> and I still can barely build muscle. I mean, it's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we like to tell them like that's the least of your worries is is actually bulking up in midlife because it is a downhill mm -hmm. battle. I mean, even for most guys, it's just an exercise in various shades of maintenance, isn't it? Like you're, yeah. you're, you're hardly stacking on, you know, kilos of muscle all the in time. In my experience, too. <laughs> it's, yeah, no, that's, uh, it's a, yeah. So, so we're looking at those kind of pillars of, of, um, so cleaning up the diet, sorting out exercise, um, you know, and strength training and, and so many women, they're so much stronger than they think they are. You know, men are always so much weaker than they think they are. And women are always so much stronger. I'll tell you a really cool, um, a really cool story. There was a, there was a, there was a lifting coach at the gym and he, and he, uh, he, he was coaching some quite high level athletes. And he told me that at this competition, he came into contact with one of the Chinese Olympic coaches. And he said they were talking about this tiny little Chinese girl who was the world champion, you know, lifting some insane weight. And he said, Oh, do you think she can even get stronger? Could she even, is it even possible for a woman to get stronger than her? And the coach said, Oh yeah, yeah. When she has her children, of course she'll get a bit stronger which which was really interesting and they in their coaching mentality that's a thing that makes women physically stronger they go up a whole other notch when they have children that's really surprising i'd never heard that before but it's quite an interesting well, thing i mean it raises a good point that even though we're talking more midlife you know women who are still cycling they can take advantage of that natural cycle to maximize their gains in the gym by timing their workouts according to their hormone surges and you know, that's something that we were never, I mean, it was kind of taboo to even talk about menstruation when we were growing up. So, mm. you know, women today knowing more than we ever did about their cycle, they can kind of start that body composition lock sooner um, by really starting to harness the natural ebb and flow of their cycle over a month and, you know, lift heavy in the beginning of their cycle and things like that. So, you know, it's hormones have a huge, powerful in, impact on that. For sure. So, so it's the first stage, is it, that you want to lift heavy, yeah. and then after ovulation, back less. off. You want to back off, yeah, yeah. That's Give yourself some rest. That's yeah. really that's fascinating. Um, so, um, how, what what can people do if they want to 
if if they want to kind of st if they're listening to this and they're thinking well you know i'd kind of like to uh, before things start to go awry for me i'd like to kind of live the best the you know the best way i can to stave this off i mean you've already covered this talking about exercise and diet and things like that but what are the things that people are doing that are not helping i mean you've mentioned alcohol that's uh, yeah that raises a, a familiar smile for me but um you know i'm assuming we're talking about highly processed food diet you know alcohol lack of sleep are there, are there, are there any particular things i mean one thing that that um, my wife jess mentioned to me when we talked about uh, having this conversation she said ask them about fasting you know is that a problem for people are people exacerbating these things by putting too much stress too many too many too much cold fasting all these stresses at once what do you think about that? Maria has a recent personal experience with that. So I'll let her go into that. Oh, um, okay. So you're talking about my gym kind of coffee thing. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm, we're a fan at, at bare minimum. I think Kristen maybe is a little bit more of a fan of fasting than I am, but we're at bare minimum. You need to put 12 hours between your, you know, your dinner and then your breakfast the next day. Um, I sometimes do 13 to 14 hours. I don't really feel great if I go longer than that. I find it funny enough. I find I'm just much hungrier for the rest of the day. If I do that, that's just me again, me tuning in. Um, but so what I was doing Jack was, um, so I'm actually on a bit of a gym break. I'm, I'm doing a little bit lighter working out at home. Uh, but I was pushing it very, very heavy in the gym. I was waking up early, but I'm an early riser. So I would wake up at five 36 have coffee, usually with just a drop of cream in it. And then I would uh, get to the gym. Occasionally I would have a small, small meal, like a half of a protein shake before I would go to the gym. Anyway, so get to the gym about 6.30, uh, work out really, really hard. Um, and then I would come home and have breakfast. But I was crashing in uh, the middle of the day, uh, really crashing hard, like, you know, 12, 1, 2, like I, I – I had to find a bed. <laughs> I would have laid down like on, on, you know, a subway platform if I was in New York <laughs> city, it was really, really bad. So again, tuning into your body, I was like, nah, I need to give that a break and kind of work on my adrenal health right now, because that's what I think is implicated in just the crashing. So what I did was I actually stopped coffee and I have, and I'm a mm -hmm. coffee lover. I only have one cup a day. I don't desire more than that, but even that one cup, um, I'm not anti-coffee. I plan on going back very soon to it, but um, it just wasn't serving me. And I needed to kind of dial down that caffeine, dial down the exercise, you know, still fast 12, 13, maybe 14 hours. Um, and I, I have so much more energy, so feeling so much better. Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm not necessarily a fan of fasting per se. I think we have to be really specific in what we consider a fast, right? Um, there's fasting going seven days, 24 days, you know, et cetera. I'm a fan of time-restricted eating because I see too many women sort of grazing all day long and they've got digestive dysfunction because of it. Um, you know, they're really clued, clueless about what, how much they're eating and what they're eating. Um, so that frequency issue, I think, can get solved with sort of a shorter eating window. That being said, I'm not a fan in, in Jess's question of um, fasting from the standpoint of in midlife, we just hit this nail on the head. 
you're having a difficult time even keeping the muscle you came into midlife with. When we fast, we lose that lean muscle mass sooner than we're going to lose fat from it, you know, when we go too long. And so, you know, I'm more like a 16 hour fast kind of girl. Um, I don't feel good if I push it to 18. And part of the reason women need to be honest about this is if we're asking you to get a certain amount of protein in, right? How are you going to eat that quantity of needed protein for your diet in a six hour window? It's nearly impossible unless you just never leave the kitchen for those six hours. So, you know, Maria and I, we talk fasting more like digestive breaks and restricting your eating window for better insulin sensitivity and things like that. But anything beyond a 16 hour fast, in our opinion, is going to start to have a negative impact on a midlife woman's body. It's just inevitable. Her adrenal health is usually not optimal. That's just life. Um, you know, her muscle mass is usually not where it needs to be. Her protein intake is probably not where it needs to be. And overcoming those three things in anything beyond a 16 hour fast, nearly impossible. So the difference between Maria and I, I like to work out fasted. She realized that's just not a thing for her, but you know, that's the individuality, individuality everyone needs to figure out. So, yeah, yeah. it is difficult with the protein, isn't it? I mean, I, I've had so much benefit from eating more protein, even, even more than I thought I needed, but it, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm a rare example in that I can easily eat 150 grams of protein in 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm, I'm no problem. <laughs> no problem at all. It's like mad props to Jack. <laughs> but it's, but it is, it's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, I had this conversation with my mom recently because she was, she clearly needs to eat more protein. She was having some, some problem and, you know, with fractures and stuff like this. And we had this conversation about it and I said, look, mom, you, you know, you need to, try and get 100 grams of protein a day it's not even that much try and get that you know and she said oh well darling you know i mean i i'm i'm all right i had an egg it's like <laughs> you okay. like, try and make a breakfast out of eggs yeah i, I mean but, but people you were like oh. we hear all the time i had an egg and a piece of toast for breakfast yeah mm-hmm. and, and and then you and then you get into this kind of thing of trying to explain leucine thresholds to people and stuff and it's like well you know yeah if you eat six eggs what do you mean eat six eggs and they look at you like you're absolutely crazy it's like well yeah. you know if you're gonna do it with eggs then you're gonna need to eat 20 of them a day so <laughs> so you might want to you know get the cans of tuna out or something because right. it's gonna be hard yeah yeah well i think you know you made the term or came up with the term earlier this jigsaw and i think that's the piece that you know gets maria and i even more jazzed up is that we don't want women to think because it would be a mistake that diet and lifestyle interventions are going to uh mitigate all the impacts of menopause and hormone deficiency right there is another piece it is a multi piece jigsaw puzzle and that turns into the hormone replacement piece. I mean, we tend to think as people that, you know, um, pharmaceutical interventions are bad. They're not, you know, they have their place though. Um, and, you know, we did not just a hundred years ago live as long as we were. And so now that we're living longer, you've hit the longevity point, you know, we're, we're living without hormones for a very, very long time of our lives. And that 
has some implications that I think are really important for women to understand. So when you talk about what can these women be doing, Marie and I would say, educate yourself on what the, you know, imperatives are of no hormones in the body, because there's some pretty serious ones that you don't see and feel. And that, you know, becomes an issue. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that was, yeah, I guess where we're going to move on is to, to this idea of a, of, of more of a pharmaceutical intervention at that point. I mean, you know, historically it seems to me that you, that, that it was just like, well, here's HRT or not, and off you go. I, I'm assuming that these things have come a long way. Can you, can you shed some light on that? What, 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 what do people need to know about what, where things stand now? How has this evolved? HRT kind of came into prominence in the 1960s, um, and it was Premarin, um, and so that is a synthetic estrogen that's derived from horse urine, right? So pre, right, uh, mare is a horse, and IN is for urine, so it's not an urban legend. It really does come from horse urine. <laughs> um it's not the, it's, it's, it will stop hot flashes. It will probably give some other benefits in the body. It's not the best. So like you said, we actually have uh, come a long way. So now really the best thing is for us to have uh, just bioidentical estradiol, the bird bioidentical kind of trips some people up, especially some medical professionals. Like they think that we mean oh, it's compounded cream. No, you can get um, bioidentical kind of pharmaceuticals made by a big pharmaceutical company uh, that is going to be, you know, kind of every dose is going to be standard, standardized. So yeah, there's, there's a lot. We, we have come a long way in, in the past um, uh, 60 years or so. Yeah. And it's, you know, Maria just hit on, yes, it might uh, address hot flashes. That's the other shift in the paradigm that we're hoping to kind of push is that, you know, too many uh, medical practitioners think that we just want to address the hot flashes. This is the symptoms, right? Get the sleep better, get rid of the hot flashes, um, you know, maybe change the appearance of our skin, uh, maybe some vaginal lubrication for women. But it's kind of the notion of once those are addressed, you don't really need them any longer. And that is a huge problem because what women aren't understanding is that when these hormones decline, it wasn't just about our fertility, right? It wasn't just about carrying babies. These hormones were acting all over the body. They're acting in our brain. They're acting in our heart. They're acting in our bone remodeling. They're hugely impactful. So when we decide to live without these hormones, we have to recognize that all the wonderful diet and lifestyle interventions in the world are not going to confer the protection that hormones were giving our brain, our heart and our bones. And that piece is the one we want midlife women to really understand. And there's some great books out there. There's great practitioners who have education programs. This is something we teach on to make sure that women if they're going to make a decision either way to either supplement their hormones or not supplement their hormones, that they know why they're making that decision, what consequences are of the decision either way, and then what are the best options if they choose to supplement. And that is the piece that I think no one's talking about still. Um, and, you know, we want to kind of say to especially the younger 30, 40 year old women, now's the time for you to understand that piece, right? Work on the diet and lifestyle stuff, but really understand what's happening with your cycling hormones and what's going to happen without them. 
And then they're going to be in a much better position than people like Maria and I who are kind of caught blindsided. Yeah, it's very, I mean, as, as you alluded to earlier, we, we are living, you know, if you're going to live to 90 years old and you begin to go through these changes at, at 45 or 40, yeah. that's, that could be more than half of your life yeah. spent in that I way. <laughs> and, 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 we think, and we think nothing of, of people these days having kind of two careers because, because right. we now work so much longer than we ever worked before. And and to and to, and to not share that same you know with these kind of uh, with, with these kind of hormonal issues whether it's testosterone in men or 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 the, these 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 multiple hormones that that women rely upon you know if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna live for half our lives without these things it, that needs to be quite a conscious decision as you say yeah well I think yeah. that I was fully menopausal at forty seven if I if I have the good genes of my Sicilian grandmother who lived till 99, uh, then, you know, I've got half my life left to live. Mm. So, you know, it was, a, it was a, almost a no brainer, I think for both myself and for Kristen, like once when, when you really understand the science, you go beyond like the blogs and you go beyond North American Menopause Society recommendations, you know, the official, officious organization. Um, and you, you get into the science and then, you know, you look around, like look at your average 55 to 60 year old woman. You know, she's kind of got a sallow complexion and she's carrying excess weight. And, and, you know, you have to wonder like, does, you know, does she have a libido? Is she having fun? Um, is she happy? And, I mean, I don't know. I, I like to people watch, but I just started like looking at that age group and I'm thinking what, to myself, you know, they just, I don't know if they look so good and are they good and are they good on the inside and are they good up here? And I was like, I just don't, I want to, it's just a risk we are not willing to take, Kristen and I. And that well, and would the be science. avoidance of hormones. Yeah. And the science bears it out. I mean, there's a reason why women are what four to one, the victims of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline, right? There's a women reason why up until about age 50, men take the cake with cardiovascular disease, but by age 55, women are right there with them. And statistically with cardiovascular disease, how many osteoporotic men do you really know, right? If you say osteoporosis, the notion that comes in every woman's head or every person's head is the humped over old little lady at the bus stop right? It is not a man with osteoporosis. So, you know, men, and this is what sometimes people don't understand, men maintain a hormonal sufficiency um, a lot longer than women do. And then their decline is very gradual and slow. Women, you know, it happens to us sooner and it is like falling off a cliff. And so, you know, understanding that we aren't just made to be put up on a shelf after we give birth. You know, there is a lot of value and wisdom in that, you know, wise woman of the village sort of thing. If we're going to be sticking around 30, 40 years longer than that wise woman of the village, let's make her thriving. You know, let's make sure that she doesn't suffer these chronic diseases of aging. It's not fair in our view for a lovely 70 year old woman who, you know, maybe she continued eating great. And she never put on excess weight. And she, you know, does her yoga and, and she, you know, lives this life to the best of her ability. But maybe she hasn't had sex with her husband in 
15 years. Uh, she slips and falls in the ice and realizes she has osteoporotic bones. She's now got a femur that needs a rod in it. While she's in the hospital, she ends up with, you know, pneumonia because her immune system isn't nearly on point as it could be. This is all related to hormonal insufficiency. This is not natural aging, right? And so, or normal just because it's common. So that's where Marie and I get really stoked up because we're like, we can preach the diet and lifestyle stuff until the cows come home. Women are either gonna get on that train or not. What we need them to understand is regardless of the choices that they make in the kitchen, they still have another imperative and they need all those pieces dialed in to prevent being that humpback lady at the bus stop. Mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, you know, that clearly, as you say, um, you know, it'd, it'd be a, a bit ridiculous to suggest that men don't have an easier time of it in this respect. So what what can we as as guys, as um, guys as in men, not guys as in Paul Saladino and you guys, um, uh, what can we you know, what can we do to what can we do to support our partners in, in this in this stuff other than, you know, just kind of not being a dick about it. But what what, what is there is there anything particular that we can do? I think just like understanding how hormones change, if, if, if there's the interest there, I think that's phenomenal. I mean, I'm so thankful that my husband is just like a ma uh, an understanding man. I don't think that he necessarily understood what the hormonal decline meant. Uh, but so, yeah, if you can, men want to kind of dig into that to understand. I don't know. I feel like when you have the education around a topic and understanding, it's so, life is richer, right? And and you you get it. So as a, if guys can kind of get that, that's, that's like a great place to start. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think when you have that understanding, then you usually are going to be not falling victim to the typical kind of... Um, you know, taking it personally when the sex drive starts to change, um, you know, not deliberately shaming, but sort of, you know, feeling that women tend to isolate themselves when they get into later midlife. And sometimes it needs to be the man who's going to fight for that marriage and fight for that woman. And, um, you know, we don't want everyone to adopt the old, this is the change and this is normal and therefore we have to live with it. And some men get resentful, some men just suffer through it with their wives, et cetera. If you guys can be the kind of like other person in the room saying, hey babe, you know, are, is everything okay? You know, your mood seems off or, you know, maybe it's time to get hormones checked or something. Instead of being like, oh, here we go. Here's the change, you know, and it kind of take this like, Oh, martyr attitude towards it. You know, I will say my Marie and I have phenomenal husbands. We've both been married um, and with our spouses over 30 years each. And I would guess Maria would say the same. There's a point at which we had a wonderful spouse who said, something's going on. You know, what can I do? Or do you want to get this checked? And that was so much license to suddenly like be into who I was at that moment and figure it out instead of be defensive, feel like, you know, I was this miserable person and there was something wrong with me. So, you know, I think from a male standpoint, we love the fact that more and more men are saying, what can I do to support my woman? Because, um, you know, we do feel alone when we go through this, even with our girlfriends, you know, it's not something that everyone wants to talk about that sex is suddenly uh, physically uncomfortable. Women aren't talking about that.
you know, um, we just kind of be like, oh, I'm not interested anymore. Oh, I know me too. That is not a healthy discussion. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you can have that intimate kind of connection to what's going on with your woman, just being based on knowledge, your support will literally mean the world to helping her through this. And, you know, that we commend you for that because that's, that's another sort of generational shift that needs to happen for sure. Well, it's, it's great that we can have this conversation and, uh, you know, people can, people can kind of talk about it, you know, to find ways maybe as a, as a couple to kind of slow down this trajectory. Because as you say, you know, for men, it's going like this and for women, it's going like this. And if we can find a way to balance that out slightly, whether that's with lifestyle factors or, or clinical intervention or whatever, to, to, to get these two paths to, to peter along together a bit, the more we can kind of treat that as a problem to be solved as a couple, um, you know, or as a family, even um, rather than something that one person has to go off and quietly, shamefully, uh, you know, think about how their rubbish body is giving up on their own in the corner. You and, know. and wondering if maybe they really don't like their husband anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we there's just too uh, cliche, honestly, that marriages start to break up around this time. It's not you know, a coincidence, we hate to say it, there's, there's a mood shift and an intimacy shift and a physical shift. And if we're all on talking terms about it, we can maybe blunt, you know, the impacts of those shifts. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and now you guys have insisted we take alcohol out of the equation, you know, what <laughs> Not insist, just suggest everyone kind of has to come to that realization on their own. Like I said, it took me a long time <laughs> I, I think a lot of us um have come to that realization it's really interesting looking around it's a general it's a generational thing as well you know to look around and see that a lot of us at this age have suddenly started kind of just naturally shifting away you know without maybe even any great sort of intervention just mat naturally shifting away from it you know just finding that it's not serving us in the way that it used to when we were 20 you know yeah um yeah but guys, uh, I mean, th th thank you so much for having this conversation because it, it's it's important and it's fascinating and it's really, really, um, you know, amazing for me to learn all this all this stuff from you guys. Um, and, I, and I'm sure in, in that that being the case for everyone else as well. But where can we find you if someone's watching this and they want to uh, and they want to contact you about their own their own situation and to, and to come and talk to you? Where can where can we find you? So we're pretty active on Instagram. If someone just types in wise and well, we'll come right up. Both of our picture is in that little circle. And um, we share about five, six days a week, um, educational, inspirational, occasionally funny. <laughs> we get in your face a little bit edgy. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then in our link in our Instagram bio, we do have another kind of network community of women that we um, serve online. And we do that because Instagram obviously limits how much we can say and all the algorithms and stuff get pretty daunting. Mm. Um, but we're in a platform called Mighty Networks and we have a free channel in there that, um, you know, we'll post longer sort of information, teaching sort of um, uh, presentations about uh, midlife, you know, the diet pieces, etc. Women can ask us questions. And then we have a subgroup within that for our private clients. But we like that Mighty Networks platform. There's no friending, you know, you're not looking at political feeds, you're not dealing with COVID information. It's just very, you know, centered on the topic and um, allows us to really be a little bit more engaged with the women. So fantastic. 
Brilliant. Well, look, we'll put uh, we'll put in the notes some uh, some links. I'll get those links from you and we'll put them in. Um, but thank you so much for your time today, both of you. It's been an absolute honour and a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff. And uh, thank you for being so uh, incredibly eloquent and uh, and talking so so uh, intelligently and 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 generously about this. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, you guys. That's it for now. Come and find me on Instagram at Rustin's Boneyard and at www.rustinsboneyard.com. Keep cooking. <laughs>